Welcome back to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We are here in episode three with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and James Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. How's your week going? Yeah, it's all right. It's real cold and rainy. Um, so we got a pretty good episode for you guys today. Um, we're going to be talking about Chara possibly not being a Bruin next season. Oh. Um, this unfortunate Mitchell Miller uh, bullying incident in Arizona drafting him. Uh, the best trade trip, uh, trade chip, I'm going to be saying that all podcast long, uh, that the Bruins need to use to land a top four defenseman. Uh, most suspended games by a single player. Uh, the 1978-1979 Bruins and how they should have won the Stanley Cup. And then what could have been Jim Craig. So this is going to be a good episode. Not a lot happening in the NHL at no, the moment, especially no. on the Bruins side, Dad, but I want to get your opinion first. So Coach Cassidy was just asked in an interview um, about the possibility of losing Chara. And, you know, this is now Coach Cassidy and all of management so far has pretty much hinted that it, it's a very well possibility Chara will not be back as a Bruin, whether he retires or is with another team. What do you think about that? Do you think he would play for another team? I, I don't know. I think he wants to finish his tenure in Boston, but if Boston refuses to sign him, for whatever reason, you know, would he still have enough love for the game to play on another team? I, I don't know. I think the Bruins will end up signing him. Uh, I, anybody's guess of what the Bruins are doing right now, uh, you know, not much going on in the league, not much going on with Boston Bruins. So who knows? I think it'd be sad to uh, lose Chara. But, um, you know, we talked about it in previous podcasts. He is up there in age and he's 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 slowed down quite a bit, but he's still, a, you know, a good checker. And, you know, I, I think he's most effective when they plant him in front of the net on a power play, meaning when we're on the power play, put him in front of the opponent's goalie. It's been a long time since they've used Chara as an I mean, front presence on the power play. I think, you know, if we're going to use him for sort of a special teams role like that, I say put him in front of the goalie and see what see what happens. Nobody's going to move him from front of that net, but I don't want to digress. I still say the Bruins are going to sign him. Uh, it's just a matter of working things out. Yeah, I would be pretty upset. I'm not going to lie. Personally, I, I really enjoy Chara not only as a person, but um, as a sports figure for Boston, for this team. Um, it'd definitely be a disappointment, all that leadership, and he still got skill. He was a plus 22 or plus 23 this past season, whatever it was, and he still got a lot of game to him left. I think that um, he needs to accept that bottom pairing role and to really just play on the penalty kill and be there as a locker room presence. But I, I predict the Bruins will sign him too, but I, like you said, Dad, I, I, I don't know who's guessing what management is doing for the Bruins correctly because – you know, nobody knows what they're doing, what's in their heads, what their plans are. Usually you can have a guess, usually insiders, you know, with the insider knowledge and everything that you research and do, you can almost, you know, understand a direction they're going. But with this off season, I, I you know, with their decision that they made, I feel like it's, you don't know what they're going to do. So I'm not going to be surprised either way. I won't hold my breath. Well, while it can be frustrating for us fans to, you know, sit back and just be party to, you know, nothing's going on or maybe something's going on and just not knowing, but I think we need to owe it to Sweeney and to, uh, you know, he's got a game plan. He's working things out. You know, I don't want to go on record of, you know, being too critical. And then all of a sudden he has a trade deal of the century and, you know, that ends up being the best thing for the Bruins in a while. So I, I don't want to, uh, criticize the guy, let him do his job. We have no idea what it's like on the hockey side, or the business side of hockey, I should say. So uh, let's just give him a chance to uh, work out what he needs to work out. And we, and we talked about either last podcast or the one before that about, you know, the Bruins ownership and how they're going through a lot of financial trouble there at Delaware North. And if that has any impact on an internal cap, we just don't know what's going on. But um, when we say we don't know what's going on or they don't know what's going on, I'm pretty sure the organization has a plan. So we'll just let it take its course. And, you know, we can be critical after, but I, I still think it's too early to criticize. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And, um, you know, I just, I still feel like, like I said, I'll keep saying, I think Charles has a role with this team, regardless of his age right now and how slow he's become as a player, because nobody can deny that. But 
whatever. It'll be interesting to see what happens, but I'm not holding my breath on this one. In fact, I'm still a little nervous, given I'm a pretty big Char fan. But moving on, Dad, so <clears throat> the hot thing going around the NHL right now is um, a kid named Mitchell Miller. For those who haven't heard about this yet, you probably are like, who the hell is this guy? Well, you're going to hear his name and not in a good light. Um, just very briefly, he was drafted by the Arizona Coyotes this past draft in the fourth round. He was the first pick during that round. Um, and apparently uh, he was on a lot of uh, do not draft lists for teams due to uh, being convicted of uh, assault, I believe, of some sort. But uh, because of a bully, bullying incident, um, I think it was a kid maybe on his hockey team, maybe it's just a kid. I know that they lived in the same neighborhood, but uh, went as far as, you know, wiping candy and rich crackers on, you know, urinal seeds and the size of it and, you know, making them eat piss-filled stuff. I mean, this isn't, you know, some 14-year-old kid just bullying or anything. And, you know, we can all have our own opinions of, you know, their cognitive function at that age and then and their decision-making at 14. But I can say as somebody who may have not been a great person at 14, um, would have definitely have never went as far as, as this and to torture a kid and to continue doing it after being convicted. He kept doing it for years after and Arizona gave him a chance, drafted him, said that they believe in second chances and that they want to be able to mold and change him and are now making him part of an anti-bullying ad. I'm sure I missed maybe a few details, but dad, just, I know maybe briefly you saw that in the news. Do you have any opinions about that? Have you checked that out yet? Well, it's, it's a difficult situation. And no, other than, you know, the headlines and, uh, you know, an article that I read about it, it's, 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 it's sad because on one hand, you know, the kid made really, really dumb choices and that's being politically correct, but, you know, you know, being an idiot and being, you know, a bully and, you know, whatever, a mean kid. Uh, but he was 14 and now I guess he's 18. Um, I mean, the story, you know, kind of goes like this. Arizona did draft him and, uh, He's going to uh, North, North Dakota. Dakota. So he's not going to be playing in any minors or anything. He's going to play some college hockey in North Dakota, thinks that they can give him the infrastructure that he needs to, uh, you know, continue to, uh, you know, come to terms with what he did at, at age 14, 15. I guess it depends on what side, you know, if, I mean, we've all done dumb things, maybe not to this extent, certainly, but uh you know, does the kid need to, you know, give up a professional career in hockey because, you know, he was an asshole when he was 14? Um, you know, it, I mean, who, who knows? Typically, I don't get me wrong, I'm not a, a lawyer, but I would think that a lot of the um, adolescent courts as records are supposed to be sealed, meaning you're not supposed to, you know, they're supposed to be either expunged or sealed or something. We're not supposed to know what happened, but you know, he did come out and he sent, what, letters to all 31 teams and uh, apologized for it. But there's uh, criticism his way that he never truly apologized to the victim and the victim's family. And the victim, I guess, is an African-American male. He's and also, also disabled. Right, is also disabled. So that, that just makes it uh, even more of a terrible situation. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, what is it, you know, is a kid not supposed to have a career? But if you're a team, uh, if you're a GM, you know, would, or a coach, would you want him on the team knowing this stuff? Would, you know, I, who knows if it's going to mess up any chemistry? North Dakota's taking him. I guess, uh, you, you know, we'll be able to find out how he, if he's going to grow up or if he's grown up a little bit and how he acts. And hopefully he makes some uh, amends to not only the victim, the victim's family, but, uh, uh, you know, to himself as well by trying to do good. I think that would be the best thing that this kid can do. But, uh, you know, I, I really don't know what to say. Arizona saw something in the kid, so they drafted him. I heard the GM didn't draft him. That it was no, it was not else. GM, but... Uh, the president? Of course, I, yeah, whoever the, the committee was. Um, and I know that Bill Armstrong did come out and, and make a statement about it and said that they are going to work with him and that he is aware, but really wasn't much to say, but, you know, there is an argument to both sides and the kid was 14, you know, he was young and we've all done, done, th dumb things at 14, but 
um, something like this in my, and this is just my opinion, and I won't go too deep into it because it's a hockey podcast, but um, somebody that has a younger brother that um, has autism, I don't know what the disabled, uh, what disabled uh, thing that uh, the the victim had, but um, all I've got to say is, is that if my brother was ever treated like this, uh, regardless of if the kid was 13, 14, 15, or 16, I would hope that he would never have a professional career in anything. And there are there are consequences to your actions. And I think that he should just deal with it and move on and apologize to the victim. That's probably my biggest problem I have with it is he hasn't gone to the victim all the, and of course he apologized to all 31 teams, but apologize for what? Because he wants to get drafted. Right. So I got, I got problems with that. And I don't know. I think that this kid is probably just a bully always has been maybe still will be maybe all this online scrutiny will you know, have his mental health down the drain to the point where he's saying, I, I've got to, I've got to do something publicly to seem like I'm doing better, but. Well, I think he needs to, I mean, <laughs> the only, I think the right thing for him to do going forward would be to, you know, show, well, first of all, have, look at himself in the mirror and make changes and then be able to show that he's made these changes and he's young enough. He's only 18 that he can make some sort of amends to, the, the, the family and, and, and the person that he was bullying. I mean, he can do that. Even if he, I mean, he could even do that financially. If he, if he makes it to the AHL and he gets a, a deal in the AHL, you know, he, he can help out this family and this victim. And there's just things he can do to make amends. You can't always 100% make amends, but he's young enough. Let's see if he actually make amends or if he's going to be more of a jerk and never talk about it or do, you know, whatever. So he's young, he can make amends. So hopefully he does the right thing going forward. He's only 18, but definitely I think everybody's looking for him to make amends. And maybe this is part of the consequences. Everybody in the world, absolutely hating him, or at least most people, there are still a lot of people who think that at 14, this kind of behavior is normal for some odd reason. I don't know what parents have these kids that just let them do what they want. But um, I would hope that there are definitely consequences for his actions and hopefully that he does change. I mean, that's what you hope for the more of the best is that he does change because um, that victim is traumatized and it's just a touchy subject, touchy subject for everybody, but we'll see what happens from it. So let's move on now. So we're not talking about that forever. So one more thing about the Bruins. So dad, I released or I published an article yesterday um, which players the Bruins should use as trade bait uh, for several reasons. And I don't want to talk about the obvious choices, which are Nick Ritchie and John Moore, but what are other trade chips that may be a little more risky, somebody that actually has trade value that well, we could trade for a top four defenseman? Well, we, we had talked about the potential with, with DeBrusque, and DeBrusque has been out there in rumors. Uh, so, you know, you've got that going. Other than that, I don't know who else would be a, a, a really good trade bait at this point in time. I think you're going to have to cobble together uh, a bunch of players. And even if you need a three-player to a one-player deal, that's what you need to do. And the Bruins may have to end up paying a little bit more. But if that's what the Bruins feel they need to do, I think that's their only choice. Yeah, I think Jake DeBrus is probably our biggest trade chip that we can use um, especially to get a quality top four defenseman. I don't know if the Bruins are in a position to really keep giving out first and second round draft picks. I'm not big into following every single year's prospects until right before the draft, but um, maybe the draft class isn't as strong and they can afford to do that. But I think that Bjork is also a big, big thing, especially if he does begin to break out this season. Um, but of course his injuries uh, from the past two years before this, before he played the almost this entire season might raise some questions, but that three year, $1.6 million contract will age nicely if he breaks out in the middle of the season. So that's a good tr- trade chip as well. But I also think um, Vikaninen, I, I hope I'm saying that right. Your Uro Vikaninen, he still has yet to break out of Providence, unfortunately. And I think that um, was Zaboral now on a one-way contract. Now you have Lausanne on a one-way. Well, I, again, but, you know, we're talking, and I don't want to take away from these guys. I mean, they, you know, they're making it to the AHL and the NHL. We're sitting here criticizing them. But as far as, you know, good trade bait, I mean, this is low-lying fruit, is it not? 
I yeah. mean, this is not so the prospects like, pretty much. So the Bruins really need to, you know, if they're going to make a trade, they might have to give up a John Moore, which I wish they would trade and give up a, a Bjork and maybe a, a prospect to get somebody. You know, it just depends. The other team's going to be looking for, if we give away this quality player, what are we going to get? And is it worth it for us? So, and I don't know, we'll see what happens, but the Bruins, I don't think have much in the way of trade bait at this point in time. Not without giving away somebody that's going to create possibly another hole and throwing in the faith that your youth will just cover the spots, that next man up mentality, which worked in 2018, 2019, went all the way to the game seven Stanley cup. That was our motto next man up, but you know, that's, it's going to be big. And I, you know, I agree that DeBrus may be the best trade ship for it, but I don't know if, if it's going to be worth it. Cause it's like the, um, the argument about the line, a trade, right. They would want to talk defenseman in return. And with McAvoy now being deemed untouchable right. by Sweeney, Carlo's the next man up and Carlo would have to go in a trade with a bike and nine and one of our top prospects, quote unquote, and then a, a, a big time, you know, first round pick probably, maybe another second round as well. So it's going to have to give up a lot. But listen, though that window is still closing. I don't care. I don't think they should rebuild yet. Sub Marchand, sub Bergeron, Krejci have these guys that can bring them to the cup like they just did last season. So it's, we'll see. It's, it's a slow week for the NHL in general, particularly Bruins. Who knows? Maybe next week we'll be talking about a big trade or. Well, why don't you throw it back for us then, Dad? If there's nothing to talk about in the NHL, throw it back. Let's reminisce a little bit on some Bruins stuff then. What you got for us? Okay, is that where we want to go? We're going straight to it. Let's do it. So I thought it would be, and this is sort of brings up a a sore spot with a lot of Bruins fans, but part of our – we're going to talk about the 1978-79 Bruins season. Now, while Bruins fans might enjoy, especially the fans my age, talking about the old school Bruins, but particularly the 1978-79 season was a heartbreaker for Boston. Do you know why, Andrew? No. Educate me, Dad. So this was the Bruins should have won the Stanley Cup. Another one. Great. Another one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. We won won two. And then, and then we, you know, we lost a couple, Philadelphia, and of course, and, and it makes this worse because it has to do with the dreaded Montreal Canadiens. So this is, uh, well, first of all, the Bruins had a great season. They were first in their division. Uh, this is back when Don Cherry Grapes was coach. Uh, Bruins had, had got back uh, some of their players that they lost to the WHA, particularly uh, like Jerry Cheevers, I believe. But uh, they went with Gilles, Gilles Jabert, Gilles Jabert, um, who was the hot goalie at that time. So we are going... Uh, to the famous playoffs where the Bruins end up losing when they should have won in game seven of the semifinals against Montreal in Montreal too. And, uh, but let me back up. So did you know, Andrew, that the Bruins were so good that year that they actually had nine of their players that scored 20 or more goals? Wow. I mean, they were the, you know, big, bad Bruins, you know, Terry O'Reilly, I think Bobby Schmatz was still on the team, Stan Jonathan, you know, you name it. We, it, they just were steamrolling over everybody. So game seven at the Montreal Forum, Bruins are up by one goal with two minutes left in the game. And then something happened and the Bruins get called for too many men on the ice. And in the power play Guy Lafleur one of their star players scores on a power play goes into overtime what happens in overtime Guy Lafleur scores again and eliminate the Bruins and what's sad about this is they went on to defeat the not so great New York Rangers four games to one to win the Stanley Cup so the Bruins you think would have beat the Rangers if they made it to the Cup oh there's no question there's no question. And don't get me wrong. Montreal had a good team, a great team uh, that year as well. But the Bruins had it in the bag and all because of, and can you imagine the linesman? And I forget who, who it was. 
the linesman that had to call a too many men on the ice call with two minutes left in a game seven. Yeah, that's pretty brutal. But they had to call it. Yeah. And I forget who it was, uh, but basically there was miscommunication on the bench. And uh, the story goes that Don Cherry was already at odds with Harry Sinden, the GM, and they had been kind of feuding back and forth for a few years, but, you know, Cherry was getting results. But this also ended the tenure of Don Cherry. He was fired not too long after that. And, uh, and then Cherry went on to, uh, I believe the next season, he went on to coach for a year with the Colorado Rockies, and they were just terrible. So they weren't the Avalanche back then? They were the Rockies? They were the, they were the Rockies. Right? The Rockies, interesting. So uh, that's kind of the, the history and the famous Too Many Men on the Ice. It is on YouTube, and uh, I invite everybody to watch it. But it's just sort of one of those, it could have, what should have been, could have been one of those times where the Bruins clearly had a, one of the best teams, if not the best team, and they should have. Well, it's like, it's like being at uh, Uncle Scott's house one time. We were down there visiting on a weekend and uh, watching the Bruins game six in 2013 against Chicago in the Stanley Cup finals. And I swear to God, I, I get up, I go piss, I sit back down, and I see that suddenly Chicago has scored two goals. And the game's about to end, and Chicago's just tossing their shit up, and they just won the Stanley Cup. And I'm sitting here thinking, what just happened? I just remember they were beating them that game. It was getting close, and it was like, you know, we're we're going on to a game seven. And I don't know what happened, but uh, the sore stuff. That's, that's, that's like the story now for the Bruins is we should have won the Cup that year. We should have. Well, and you could say that in, in the last decade that the Bruins – won one but lost two right and in the in the late 80s into uh, maybe i think it was 90 you know the bruins went to the cup twice couldn't get it done you know said this 78 79 season couldn't get it done and i can't remember i know there's one is might be even two but i remember the bruins losing with the bobby or esposito team in 74 75 i can't remember i'd have to look it up that you know, went to the Stanley Cup Finals and they lost. So the Bruins lose the Stanley Cup quite a bit. Yeah, I remember seeing their record on a Nesson or something one time, and it was really brutal. Basically, the chances of the Bruins winning the Stanley Cup Final are very fucking slim. Very, very slim. Well, and you got spoiled as a fan around 2009, 2010, when I finally got you obsessed with Bruins hockey and – you know, I remember us watching the first playoff game of 2010 and you just 2011. Well, I thought it was 2010 and you were having trouble in the playoffs. And I said, you better get used to it, you know, because it, 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 it doesn't get any better. It just you're on pins and needles. And then the next year you went through it again and the Bruins won. That's right. But then you felt the pain of 2013 and recently. and right. And last year. Or should I say two seasons ago, I guess. So now you understand the Bruins pain here, but uh, the Bruins fans pain, but uh, you know, the Bruins just have to have to get it done. Oh, also it's a, it's a kind of a interesting tidbit. The first round draft pick for the Bruins in 2000, I'm sorry, 1978, 79 season was Al Secord, which is a, a, I, one of my favorite players out of the Bruins He's like a he. I thought he looked like Terry O'Reilly. He acted like Terry O'Reilly. He was he could score. He could fight. He could, you know, do whatever you what you want. And I remember a few years ago reading that Al Secord and he did well for the Bruins. Then he I think he went to Chicago, and then retired or whatever happened to him. But he had a good career. And uh, he's an airline pilot. I think for either United or American Airlines. And I was like, what? So every time that I get on a plane, if it's an American or United, you know how you walk off the plane and the pilots are kind of there saying yeah. goodbye. I'm always looking. I'm sure he's not going to look like 1979-year-old <laughs> yeah. Al Secord, but I always look and it's like, if he looks like Al Secord, it'd be kind of cool if I was on the plane and Al Secord was the pilot. So uh, just kind of a tidbit there. Every time I fly, I always ask, hey, is there a Captain Secord over there? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, that would be interesting. It would have been even better, though, if he had looked exactly the same from back in the day. But I've never heard of this guy. Uh, you, really? And I love, oh, like, the O'Reilly era and stuff. But I've never heard of 
C chord? Is that what you said? C chord. Yeah. Al, Al C chord. Chord. Okay. I thought you said C chord. No, okay. you got a YouTube. He, C chord. He, he's, a, he's a good fighter, too. What number did you wear? Do you remember? Uh, I can't off the top of my head. Okay. Well, you said some stuff about old school hockey. Well, I did a little bit of research myself. And luckily, it related back to old school hockey. And I looked up, actually, I saw this on a fighting highlight video yesterday. And uh, some most, most games suspended by a single player. Hopefully I'm even saying that right. But just for the fact checkers out there, this is the most suspended, but it's not due to on ice. So I'll just mention it for those people. Slava, Slava Voinov. I don't know how to pronounce that. Part of the LA Kings property. Um, he recently just got off his five and a half year suspension. Yeah, um, I remember that. Due to a mister, due to getting arrested uh, for a misdemeanor domestic violence uh, charge, and I guess uh, that happened in 2014. He got suspended. And now he's going to be good. He's now good this year, but I have no idea where he's at. Or I did not do any research because the important part's coming up. So the real suspension, Dad, and this is the one that I saw on TV, and I was like, oh, I've got to talk about this tomorrow. I don't know how to pronounce the name. Billy Kotu, Boston Bruins. Of course, 1927, <laughs> the longest on-ice suspension ever, two and a half years, 100 and whatever games, 200-something games, 220 What did something. he do? Stanley Cup Finals. I have no idea what game, but this is the Stanley Cup Finals. I don't know what happened, but in the description it says he assaulted one referee. After assaulting one referee – he then tackled another referee. Subsequently, then he started a bench clearing brawl. And the rumor was it he was set to have or he was said to have been uh, ordered by coach or head coach for the Bruins at the time, Art Ross, to carry out the hit, the what I don't know what happened. And you look it up, it's 1927. So obviously there's not a ton of information, but Punches one ref, tries to beat him up, then tackles, full-on tackles another one. Starts a bench-clearing brawl after that in a Stanley Cup final game, and apparently the head coach is the one that told him to wreak havoc. I wonder what caused this. I wonder why he assaulted two referees. Kind of sounds like today's KHL. Yeah. Yeah, KHL is pretty <laughs> interesting shit. <laughs> so that's, 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 that's all I got for you. That's that's my old school research right there. Yeah, I'm no, I, I I I didn't know that. I you know when you mentioned you were talking about that, I you know I had to go. Geez, I, I really don't know. And I remember in recent days, like 2015, was it Rafi Torres? Remember, he's the. I think that Torres might have been the one that hit Horton too. Maybe that was Rome, and he got like 40 games or 41. Yeah, games, maybe like it was that. Rome that did to Horton, but yeah, Torres got 40 some games. Oh, I forgot this tidbit information. He was originally banned from the NHL for life because of this, no. but it was reinstated to two and a half years, but he never played in the NHL again. So almost like a life ban from the NHL for assaulting two referees in the Stanley Cup finals and starting a bench clearing brawl. Yeah. But back then that was like every game. I remember I you, you YouTube this. I, I, I know it's on YouTube cause I, I saw it about a year ago. There, uh, Terry O'Reilly gives a, and he was a lefty. So he was a Southpaw. And I think he gave a good right hand cross to head referee, Andy Van Helmon one time. And, uh, you know, had some games suspended, definitely got kicked out of that game, but probably had some. So it wasn't like if today, if, a, you know, you take a slug at a referee, you'd probably get thrown out of the NHL for life. But, uh, you know, back then, even the 70s, 60s, 70s, it was, you know, they kind of tolerated a little bit more, I think. They should know. Sport back in the day, but they had to. But you got to remember it back in old school. Like the penalty boxes in most of the arenas didn't have plexiglass, right? So they're yapping at players, they're jumping over. You know, pl players are you know reaching in the penalty box and grabbing this, this, and that. And and if you even look some of the old stadiums, I remember Montreal Forum was supposed to be the one that was the most feared place to play as far as being a team, a home team member, meaning you had like, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it's like the 
prime minister of Canada and, you know, basically the leaders of Canada are sitting behind the Montreal bench and behind the benches, there was no plexiglass. So you could just talk to the coach right there, yell at the players, do whatever. So you had all these leaders of Canada, you know, if Montreal's having a bad game, they just, you know, screaming at them. Can you imagine just having like, doesn't matter what president at the time, but any of the president, all the higher up power people in the government just sitting behind. Yeah, during games, you're, you're literally you, behind the coach going, yeah, what, what are you doing? Why don't you shoot the puck? Why don't you shoot the yeah. puck on the power? And that's, that's, that's what they used to do. Well, that's what Bruins fans do to the Bruins, in my opinion. I mean, so uh, to be honest with you, if I was a player, I don't know, like, obviously because my family was all born and raised from Boston. I, I, I'm almost a from Boston from how much it's right. in my life and I visited it, but other than that pride, if I was any other player in the NHL, unless like you like that passionate fan base, I don't know. I'd want to go somewhere quiet because I'd hate to be like a target all the time or to be like, you got to play well every single time because Bruins fans or all Boston sports fans do not tolerate losing, including myself. I mean, I include myself in that too, but if I was a player on the outside, somebody that is not familiar with that lifestyle, those people, it typically, you know, I mean, all you got to do is look at the Bruins alumni and see all these Canadians because, you know, most of them back in the day were all from Canada. U.S. players really didn't play a lot at that point in time, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. And uh, they all ended up, you know, they normally stay in Boston, a lot of these ex-players, because they like Boston. They were treated well and, you know, they had some good teams, except for the 90s, but they had some good teams and, Fans respected them and welcomed them into the community. So, uh, yeah, but Boston Garden was a tough place to play. Uh, you know, I think it was Dave Schultz, the old, you know, some people say the toughest player. I don't, but one of the toughest players for sure. And back in the goon days of the 70s, he used to say he couldn't sleep at night knowing that he had to go into the Boston Garden because he's got to face the Boston Bruins, who was just as tough You're as Philly. Schultz said that? Schultz said that, yeah. Wow. Said that they would, you know, not sleep well. Yeah, I don't know. Because they got to face the Bruins, and, and they the also got to face the fans. And remember, the old garden, the, it, it, it's, it's, the setup is not the way the stadiums are now. So the balconies were basically almost overhanging on the ice. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, you didn't have so it. So it didn't go up. Like those right, upper levels exactly. Right, so, over. right. So it, it felt like, you know, some of the players felt like, you know, you were playing in a, in a fishbowl. It was really close. So, you know, take that and you didn't have. They probably you know, threw shit on the ice on that. Oh, they did. Oh, I could imagine being in that penalty box, like you were saying, no plexiglass. And sure. Know, I mean, even with the small plexiglass where the fans might have been at the Boston Garden, I mean, you guys would just throw shit, get over, just yell at them. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, I remember in the 80s, some guy, you know, you might be able to find a video was angry at one of the refs for calling too many penalties or ridiculous penalties a guy thought. So he, he was drunk and. Drunk, and he jumps over the boards and jumps on the ice. He gets he gets slammed by the linesman. Oh, know, is that the video with the yeah. linesman? Yeah. But it's like, come on. You know. Some passionate but fans right there. That's get the on the passionate ice fans. The ass, well, I've got one sh- could have, should have been. And this is more of a, and we can't end on this. We'll have to end on something more positive. But um, something in the news, at least in my news feed, maybe he's on social media that, talked about Jim Craig. And, you know, you got to remember, I talked about the 78, 79 Bruins. Well, I was like 11 years old. I, I remember that game seven. I remember watching the Bruins just too many men in the ice. Now it goes to overtime. Now they lose. And it's like, what happened? Well, so Jim Craig, as everybody knows, is the famous goalie from the 1980 U.S. hockey team that won the gold medal. I mean, this guy stood on his head. You really need to, don't watch highlights, watch some games on YouTube or whatever you can find. And you'll just see how incredible this guy was. And it goes to show you too that when a goalie gets hot, anything can happen. Because that U.S. team, this was back when we just actually used college prospects that made the team. Right, no NHL players. No NHL. But the Russians, they weren't allowing, you know, their – players who were actually enlisted or commissioned into the Russian army, the Soviet army. So they're 
working for the military, except they just work full time as hockey players. And of course, everybody knows the Russians were, were great throughout all that time. And it was like, you know, playing with the, you know, the, you know, like the pros playing against the high school teams, you know, they were just dominating everywhere we go. So anyway, we had a hot goalie, had a great coach that motivated our players. Let's face it, we had a lot of good college players from that point in time. I mean, anybody can watch the highlights or the movie, even though it's Disney, I still like Miracle with Kurt Russell. I think that's pretty good. But uh, anyway, Jim Craig, so Boston University, He's a Boston kid, grew up in Boston, um, Easton, I think, and uh, won the, uh, the gold medal. And I remember as a kid um, that the Bruins signed him after the Olympics. And it was like a no-brainer, like, hey, we're going to have Jim Craig. This guy's great. Well, unfortunately, he sucked. Well, I shouldn't say he sucked, but he didn't do well. In the NHL? Right. Oh, okay. So, 1980-81 season. So remember, the Olympics was like February or whatever, 1980. So this is the same year. So Bruins get him, thinking he's going to be great. Five wins, seven losses, six ties with a 3.68 goals against average. Jeez, yeah. Now, originally, just a little bit of history of, of Craig. So he was originally drafted by the Atlanta Flames uh, something like the 70, uh, 72nd overall pick in the 77 draft. So obviously he went on to play college hockey after he got drafted. And then the Bruins picked him up and uh, he only lasted, uh, you know, that one season. And I remember watch, I remember watching the first game that he played. He was in a Bruins Jersey. He was excited homeboy, you know, homegrown boy. And it just didn't work out for the poor guy. And then the Bruins, I think waved him. He played a little bit in the minors, but he, he just went away. And he did do, I think, some international play. Um, and then he ran into, unfortunately, some problems that I don't want to dwell on because I don't remember too much, but it was something like, I think he was charged with like vehicular homicide, but he, he got acquitted by the judge. But anyway, he just got into some issues around 81, 82, I remember. And then he finally ended up, being signed by Minnesota and he played like um, three or four games and he retired in, in 84. And a lot of people kind of say, you know, it was whatever he didn't have the greatest lifestyle or whatever, but he's still in Boston. He does well as a motivational speaker. I just think, it, you know, if he had had a, had a second chance or if the Bruins worked with him, he probably could have been one of the Bruins best goaltenders in, in the eighties. And we had a lot, I mean, Pete, Peter, well, Jerry Cheevers uh, would have been well coached by then. Uh, but uh, certainly Pete Peters, of course, Andy Moog later on, Reggie Lemlin. I mean, we had a lot of good goalies, but I think if they developed him a little bit more and it just seemed like there was a lot of on, I mean, off ice issues that they were trying to deal with. With from, him? From what I remember. So is this guy like, you, you mentioned his lifestyle and clearly the vehicular homicide, which I guess we won't get into if he got acquitted, but what was he a party or something? Well, was, you, know, I, you said these are all college kids. So I don't, this guy was young. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to speculate. I just, I mean, my memory when I'm, you know, 13 years old, I, you know, that's fair enough. Um, but there was something I, I remember at the time they were, the Bruins were concerned about his off ice stuff, but uh, clearly he was, a great goalie. And I think, you know, just having, you know, five wins, seven losses, six ties. I mean, work with the guy a little bit, but they, they didn't. And they sent him down and, and eventually they, I guess they waved him. And he tried to make that, that one comeback. Cause when he's international playing 82, 83, I think he got what goalie of the year tournament and in the international, whatever they might've had at that time, world cup for hockey or whatever. So he was still playing, but just never made that impact on the NHL, which brings me to the other one, Michael Ruzioni, the captain of that team. And I don't know the circumstances of why he never jumped to the NHL, but he was, and again, this is just my childhood memory. I didn't look this up on the internet recently, but I remember, you know, he could have gone because a lot of players got drafted or picked up signed that were on that team. 
um, you know, Bruins, I remember had David Christensen, you know, and, and there was, you know, Silk went on to play. A lot of players went on to play. Aruzioni, from what I remember, chose not to jump to the NHL because he didn't, he wanted to be remembered as the captain of the Miracle on Ice team. And I think it served him well on that. And I don't know if he was good enough, strong enough, big enough to have made the NHL, but I just remembered the stark contrast between two Boston boys at that time, Jim Craig, who, who tried to make the jump to NHL and it just didn't work for him. And then a Ruzioni who didn't even attempt to make that jump from what I remember and was a good move for him. And it's tough for a lot of these players, you know, like when do you, what do you want to be known as? And luckily for Jim Craig, I mean, he's known around Boston as, as a great guy. I know a lot of people that tried to send him like fan mail and get things signed and he's always honored their requests. So I just think Jim Craig is a great guy, but it's just one of those, I think if the Bruins had worked with him, he could have ended up being, I think, one of the, the better goalies that Boston had during the 80s. And they just, for some reason, they, it just didn't happen. Yeah, I'm interested in the homicide thing. So that, I'm going to look that up when I get home and see why, what was the situation. Because that's just, that's like some off the documentary. But anyways, we'll move on from any of the sad well, stuff. Well, there's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's finish yeah, with something. It's 2020. Something. It's cold. It's rainy here in Oklahoma. My socks and shoes are wet because I got to walk kids in between class. To listen. So I've got a story that we can end with. Oh, well, I got a story too. Okay. What kind of story? Well, it's I'll more of a memory. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, well, mine's a memory too. So talking about the 1980s, so I'm, I'm on the Beverly Youth Hockey, right? Beverly on the North Shore, Massachusetts. How old Beverly, you? I don't know, it's 1912. Uh, uh, okay. And we went on a tournament to Lake Placid, New York, and it was literally two months after the Winter Olympics. At least that's my memory. It was definitely a few months after the Winter Olympics were over. And I remember we stayed and we had, uh, we we're up in Saranac Lake, New York. And we, we played, you know, a bunch of teams. I got to play in the arena that the Miracle on Ice happened. But I don't know if you know this, there was two rinks, at least my memory is. One was the rink that U.S. won the gold medal in that had a lot of fans, a lot of seats in it. And they had a one right next door to it, just separated by a wall. And that was another rink that they had going. I played my games for my tournament there, but it was clearly like just a normal rink that you would have anywhere. And I remember being in the locker room and they still had, I remember it was like Romania or something like that, you know, that they still had their names on the, on the, uh, in the locker room, oh, okay. where to sit and everything. Cool. And it was pretty cool because it was a, you know, professional locker room compared to whatever but anyway Saranac Lake they had this the worst hockey rink it was like not outside but it had no heat and it was the coldest rink and I've done a lot of frozen pond hockey this was the coldest rink ever and every team that came in that played Saranac Lake youth hockey or whatever they were used to it and we weren't, and literally we were like frozen. You've seen the uh, winter classics where they have, Ugh. no, it was worse than that. What? And you're like you're 12. 12. Yeah. Ugh. And it was the worst experience. Like literally we're 12 and we're sitting there crying on the bench, <laughs> you know. And the other kids and are like skating stomp, Yeah, and we're trying just... to like stomp our feet because your feet have gone numb, your body's gone numb. You know, at this point you just want to go home. But it was the coldest. So if anybody's from Saranac Lake, New York, and knows what this, and it was like, it didn't have plexiglass. It was like chicken wire coop, chicken wire. That's terrible. <laughs> so basically there was ice for y'all to play on. That's it was, yeah, it was, it was sort. horrible. But we did get to play at Lake Placid, like I said. We played one game in, in the, I guess, alternate rink uh, that the U.S. you know played or whatever. But it was cool to be in the, in the village of Lake Placid to see and the Olympics were just there. So they had everything up and it was, it was really a great, great memory. So that was, that's my memory of the good and bad memory of Lake Placid slash Saranac Lake New York. Yeah. That's an interesting story. Kind of depressing though, because I couldn't imagine being out there in the cold 
at all like that and trying to do something. Yeah, Andrew does not like, you know, we lived in Florida for most of his life before moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma here. But uh, yeah, you, you like the warm weather. I, yeah, I don't I mind it. the cold, but. I don't even like warm weather. I like hot weather. Like come at me, I don't care. But so before we go, I got one memory I want to share. Sure. If anybody heard our last episode, um, then you know that I grew up in Florida, grew up going to uh, the ice hockey rink in Tampa, Florida for my dad's beer league game. Sometimes uh, he played two games. In Brandon, Florida, which was, was also, Brandon. yeah, it was a twin rink that uh, is still used as the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, training facility. And I guess when teams that are coming in to play Tampa can't get on the ice at the uh, – whatever they call it, the forum, then they have to do their practices at this rink. So it was, it was, it was a nice rink. Right. Yeah. I remember the Boston Bruins used to come down during the summer for a week and I would always see the flyers in there right before you'd actually walk into the rink part um, where everyone was skating and everything. Yeah. I love that place. But uh, one of the best memories was uh, one of the years, I think right before it was whenever you you're on that team, you guys won like five, Beer Cup champions. Well, every once in a while, you know, it was supposed to be a no check league, 35 and over, no checking league. Well, the no checking was a lie. Right. There was plenty of checking, a bunch of angry men that yeah. did not want to be home with their wives and that, shooting children. That's exactly what it was. And yeah. they needed to take out their frustrations and emotions out the hockey way and then go drink beer afterwards and right. go eat and not go home. But right. I'll never forget, I'm with like, I'm always hanging out, obviously, with the other dad's kids, you know, your friends are on the team and everything, and grew up with them, some of them, and then uh, I remember we're playing, like, that street ball hockey stuff in the rink, not, like, right on the outside where the arcade games are, but inside right there, and I remember one of your guys on your team, Steph, this guy's, like, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, you know. Great guy. Big Look like a bodybuilder back in the right. day. At least owner, when I was. O- owner of, by the way, Clean Earth Systems. I don't mind giving a free plug to uh, my buddy Steph. He is uh, uh, just a great guy. But go ahead. I don't want to take. Yeah, story. Steph also did a lot of things for me as a kid. Had me go to my first big concert. So he's a great guy. But for some reason, there was middle-aged women that were allowed to play in your league, and I thought that was a little dangerous. And we're about to see oh, yeah. why. Yeah. And one of them was on the other team. And she was going, she was actually, Steph had possession of the puck. I remember. Yeah, I remember. She went in for a check, not Steph went in, because I remember the guys would not try and obviously, you know, check the girl or the woman, I should say. And uh, I remember she just went full speed trying to hit Steph. I don't know why. I I just remember this vividly. And uh, Steph didn't know. I remember there was just this big argument afterwards. Steph had no idea. Right. It was a girl stepping up. He saw somebody coming, right. reverse checked. Yeah. His shoulder caught her in the face. She's knocked out. Yeah, she was. Out. I mean, out cold. And of course, I just remember, you know, we're all like, you know, me and the, we're like, oh shit, something's about to happen. Yeah. And all of a sudden, a brawl just incites, yeah. ensues. There's a fight now going down by the goalie like by that corner where Steph hit the guy nobody wanted to go with Steph by the way nobody was going to fight Steph and then one of your older guys gray hair I've never seen two gray haired men out in the center ice Bill Bill was 6'2 way about 220 and and, you know people rag on the beer league and they they should we're not (laughs) professionals we shouldn't even be mentioned but there's there's a lot of players, even if it was Brandon, Florida, you'd be surprised. You have so many transplants from the Northeast, from Ohio, from Michigan, Minnesota. And a lot of these guys that, you know, again, it was a 35 and older league. So it's slower than the 20 somethings. But these are all, you know, like ex-college division two, even some division one players. But you guys, you have guys like Steph who happen to be over 35 that were fucking huge you worked out every day and i mean yeah i I just remember that brawl happening and all of a sudden i see two giant gray-haired men i mean chucking them yeah and that's where i give the credit to the beer league guys (laughs) because it's still a real fight (laughs) right and we didn't you know and i'm like our our league didn't require shields you had to have a helmet but you didn't have a shield if you remember i didn't have a shield no yeah 
there's only like two or three, there's only a few guys who wore full cages and everybody else didn't wear a visor. Right. No, no visors. visors. It was just a helmet, you know. All the wannabe. <laughs> everybody wearing their old Let's hear it for <laughs> Let's hear for that. All the guys that were from up north well, that moved I will, down to I will, I will, uh, I will have to share the, the Phyllis Bezito story at, our, at, a, at a podcast in the future of uh, the great thing about my team and go, you know, we were the capitals. If you remember yep, that. Yeah, I remember. Well, anyway, there was many that actually, uh, you know, one was a visitor locker room manager for the for the Lightning organization. Uh, another one that played on a team was actually an accountant by day, and he actually did the sh- official shot counts at the Lightning games. That's awesome. Yeah, he worked for the NHL cool. doing the, the official shot on goal, and. Uh, we had one that was working in the broadcasting. He was a guy that would, you know, help, uh, you know, work the the truck outside for the live broadcast. So we had a lot of people. Remember when the Tampa won the cup in 2004, was it? I've that, the Stanley Cup. That uh, yeah. we had a party with the Stanley Cup. We'll have to talk about that story at another that. time yeah. where, you know, the locker room guy working for the locker room, Rod, uh, had his day with a cup and he shared it with his hockey team. So uh, it was it was a lot of fun, you know, being in the culture of hockey. It's definitely the best game in the world. And like you said, even if it's beer league or little league or whatever you want to call it, it's it's uh, it's the love of the game. It's the uh, camaraderie of uh, the locker room. I mean, I used to love looking forward to Sundays when I would have to go and it gave me, you know, and I'd get there pretty early and hang out with the guys in the locker room and have a couple beers and and then get serious, you know, because you got to play, you got to be yeah. serious. So anyway, the love of hockey. Well, I'm glad you have that memory. I, I, I've certainly uh, was a great memory for me. Now I try, I'm 52 now. And you know, it's been, uh, I think I stopped when I was 45 playing hockey when we moved to Oklahoma and I want to play. There's a little bit of hockey here in Oklahoma and uh, there's definitely a league I could jump on, but uh, yeah. My uh, my wife Michelle says uh, she's the uh, she's actually a physician, family physician, and she's uh, not thinking that's a good idea for me. And because she's a physician and one of the top ones in Tulsa, and has been a physician for over twenty years, we're gonna go with her advice on this one. Well, I'd still I want to play. I know a, a little bit. If you so, would, without her knowing, you would do it. She then... just like if you blow your knee, you're never gonna recover from it. <laughs> <laughs> and your son just did that. A little over a year ago, because of a stupid right. football incident. But I, I, who so. knows? Maybe I'll do some pickup games. I miss playing it. I just miss the game of hockey, and that's really what this podcast is about: is hopefully the love of hockey. I mean, I really don't like discussing the business side of hockey, but right now that's where we're at. I'd love right. it when we're in the season, season, we can stuff. talk about it. But anyway, uh, we definitely we got some stories that I can talk about in the next podcast. Yeah about uh, the, what it was like to party with the Stanley Cup that one night. And, uh, oh, and the time that um, Phil Esposito, Esposito right? like yeah. I said, we had won the cup for the fourth or fifth time. And um, our goalie was also a sports writer for uh, um, for the Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, Lonnie Herman, great guy. And he was uh, friends with Phil Esposito. And he had Phil Esposito. We used to, when we'd win the, the championship, Steph, our that you mentioned would throw a big party and, and we'd have our own room at a restaurant and Phil Esposito shows up. Yeah. That's going to be a good one. And I remember the story. Too. Yeah. It's and I was a little one. drunk too. So I'll tell you, you know, I think, <laughs> I think I made an ass of myself, but you know, half the team's from Boston. So we're all goo goo gaga and over Phil Esposito. He was great by the way, but we'll share that story another time. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in to the third episode of the Lindroth hockey podcast, father and son co-host duo, Andrew James Lindrop say, have a wonderful night. I feel like I'm on a uh, news channel right now saying that. But Everybody stay safe, wear masks, do what you need to do so we can get back to watching and going and seeing hockey games in person, please. Please. All right, have a good night. Thank you.